And for me, it was always that my my research was focused on addressing, you know, really underrepresented populations, um, trying to, you know, improve outcomes for populations that weren't doing as well on treatment, African-Americans, women in some cases. And, and so, you know, that, that energy, that passion that I had there really set me up to be able to come to industry and bring that same passion. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Our guest today, Dr. Kimberly Smith, Senior Vice President and Head of Research and Development at VIF Healthcare. She oversees the development of the VIF Healthcare marketed and pipeline assets. Prior to joining VIF Healthcare, she spent 20 years as an HIV clinician and researcher. She's the recipient of many awards over her career, recognizing her HIV patient care and advocacy, including the Black AIDS Institute, Heroes in the Struggle Award, the Thurgood Marshall College Fund Award of Excellence in Medicine, the Clinical Educator Award, and the National Medical Association School of Merit. Today, we talk over the importance of representation, her incredible career, and how to cause good trouble in the industry. Here's our conversation. Thank you for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. As so where are you based? I'm based in North Carolina. That's that's great. So it's almost the end of the day. Um, I thought it would be really interesting for uh, us to start with your background. You can share with us your journey on the choice of the career path that you took. Um, you know, it's really interesting when you think about choices and career paths. Certainly at the time that I made decisions about what I was going to do with my life, I didn't imagine that I would be in the role that I am now. Um, but, you know, things happen along the way. So um, I can tell you that from the time I was in high school, I knew that I wanted to become a physician. And um, it was almost like I was on a, you know, a, a runaway train. You know, there was it was going to happen. And there was no, I never, there was never a diversion. I was always committed that that was going to be the case. But it was when I was in college that I came to the conclusion that I wanted to um, become an infectious disease specialist. And that was triggered by uh, the HIV AIDS epidemic. Uh, so, you know, I was, I started. Uh, medical school in 1988. And so, you know, you can, if if you've been around for a while, you'll remember that that was really, I think, what we would describe as sort of the bad old days of of HIV. I mean, at that point, um, there was one medicine that was uh, approved, and that was AZT. It was approved in 1987. And 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 as we know that it, it it helped a little bit, it didn't it didn't change the course of the disease. And so, you know, it was the bad old days and there were a lot of people, young, previously healthy people, diagnosed, rapidly progressing from HIV disease to AIDS, 
and ultimately dying. And so, you know, back in those days, I remember, you know, sort of that was maybe early cable, but still you saw your news, you know, your nightly news. And routinely, I remember the protests that were always on the on the news of, you know, from ACT UP mostly, demanding, um, you know, that people do something about HIV. Uh, and, you know, I, it's, it's, it's relevant now we think about people like Tony Fauci because he was kind of right in the middle of it then. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and, you know, I just, I felt drawn to uh, the field because it was fascinating from a scientific standpoint, but it was also um, really grabbed me emotionally because, I mean, it was, you know, it was mostly folks who were marginalized folks in society, right? Folks who were gay or intravenous drug users were really the most who we saw in the beginning. And then you started to see that there were people who got different blood transfusions and all that sort of thing. But it was definitely stigmatized dramatically in those days, still is now, but certainly worse then. And so I was drawn to that. I wanted to be a part of doing something about it. And so, so you know, I went to medical school and focused on um, really developing a career in infectious diseases. So after medical school, I did a residency in internal medicine and, and ultimately a fellowship in infectious diseases and, um, and focused my career on HIV because I just found it, you know, I found myself drawn to it both from a social perspective as well as the scientific perspective. And um, so I launched my career in Chicago uh, and I worked at, you know, a university, but also at Cook County Hospital. So that university, you know, was connected to, to Cook County Hospital. And so, you know, it was, you know, sort of the trenches, right, of, you know, really sick people. And and over the course of the early part of my career is when we started to have more and more treatment options. And so, you know, thankfully, I got to be a part of the research and developing products and trying to understand how we could optimize treatment and you know, so I spent, you know, a 20-year career in Chicago as an HIV treater, researcher, um, educator, and advocate. I would say I always saw myself as an advocate. And then in 2013, the opportunity to to join this, you know, new company called Vive Healthcare became available. Um, and, you know, Vive was unique and is unique and that it's the only company that's 100% focused on HIV medicines and treatment. And the person who was head of research and development at the time was a, a, a mentor of mine. And, you know, he basically kind of recruited me into the company with the vision that I would ultimately uh, succeed him. And uh, so that's, uh, that's how I ended up here uh, as the head of research and development for Healthcare. That's a that's a long story short, right? <laughs> no, that's right, and it's summed it up really nicely. I mean, uh, throughout your time, when you see, you know, like what 
make you think about like doing the being the clinician and thinking like this I want to do research and create a solution for HIV. How, how, how do you make that jump? Or is this a natural trend, uh, kind of part of the package of being a physician? Well, you know, um, I just I just had the interest in this area. And so I found all the people that could connect me to the right path. And and I I would say I was extremely fortunate in that I came across people who were became mentors for me who were, you know, from some of the people who were a part of the research for HIV from the beginning. And so they and they and they were exactly the kind of people you'd want to get connected to because they were committed to uh, to mentorship, to development of people. They wanted to teach people. And so I, you know, I met people like Harold Kessler, who was one of my mentors, who was, you know, uh, really, I mean, saw some of the first cases of HIV in Chicago. Uh, Connie Benson, who um, is, you know, sort of a, a played a has played a huge role in HIV research, and um, that, you know, she she was a great mentor to me, and and it was nice to have to see a woman leading the charge. And so she definitely took me under her wing. And I could go down the list of so many people that I met Mm -hmm. that connected me to opportunities to become involved in HIV research. And once I was in, there was always somebody offering me the next opportunity Mm -hmm. and the next opportunity. And, you know, I just kind of took advantage of those and developed my expertise develop my, um, you know, my research chops and, you know, but then ultimately I then became, you know, the person who was grabbing the next person and bringing them along and and teaching them the ropes on how you do HIV research, how do you get connected, how do you get NIH grants, you know, how do you, how do you build a career as a researcher? And so I just would say all along the way, there was always somebody who was helping me along and giving me an opportunity. And so I, I see that as that's just that's just the way you have to have to work in order to make, you know, to develop a community of researchers of all stripes who can all bring something unique to the table. Yeah. Maybe this is a good segue because you mentioned about FIF as being unique to focus on HIV, but I always thought it's really interesting. It's a joint venture of two large pharma companies. Can you tell us more about that? Right, so Viv is um, actually three pharma companies, but it's two two big ones and one maybe a smaller one. So it, so GlaxoSmithKline, um, Pfizer, and Shinobi are the owners of Viv. Uh, GlaxoSmithKline is the majority owner, owns about seventy eight percent. Pfizer owns um, around ten percent, and and Shinobi the rest. And Shinobi is a Japanese company, and so. How Viv came about was that basically GSK and Pfizer came together and brought their HIV portfolios together to create this company. And then Shinobi came along and really worked with some of the GSK scientists to develop the second generation integrase inhibitors that have really launched Viv. Uh, so that's Dolutegavir and Cabotegavir now. And so, yeah, it's pretty unique. But they basically said, you know, if we had a, if we created a company that was 100% focused on HIV, 
could it, you know, could it be more effective? Could you bring all of the most passionate investigators together to, you know, to really dive in in a way that, you know, is not competing with other disease areas within a big pharma company, but it's 100% focused. And I think, um, you know, there's sort of the brainchild of the uh, of the CEO of GSK at the time. And, uh, you know, I, I think he said he came to him in the shower. Uh, but, 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 Shower is uh, a great place. To yeah, come know, up with a great idea. Think, get your head cleared up there. But um, you know, it ended up being a brilliant idea that ultimately has made such a difference. I think in HIV drug development because I think the people that come into V are people. You come here knowing we focus 100% on HIV. So if you want to be an HIV researcher, you you, you know, V is one of the places you'd love to be because you know you, you're surrounded by people who are 100% focused on HIV solutions. So, you know, the researchers are here, the, the commercial teams are here, the medical affairs people are here. You've got everybody who, you know, knows how to do the research, then communicate the findings, and then take a product to market. And so that's what we've been successful at doing since uh, the first product that we launched as V was in 2013. Uh, that was Dolutegavir, and, and it's been extremely successful. Do you think so? Which might make it a big, ginormous powerhouse as well. And oftentimes, when it becomes a powerhouse, that it kind of also may discourage other people to create another company because, like, well, there's a big powerhouse. Hmm. Maybe we should. Or do you think that's not how it works? Well, I mean, no one else has 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 created a company that's focused like this, but other companies are certainly still, you know, investing in HIV research. So, you know, there's there's a number of companies that are still making HIV drugs and, you know, to some degree there there are competitors, but in reality, I think we push each other and it ultimately leads to there being better and better drugs because, right. you know, you you're always you know, you're always wanting to up the ante and come come to patients with, you know, the next thing that can help improve their lives. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I think it's a good thing that there's competition because if there weren't competition, right. you know, there'd be no motivation to keep, you know, to keep doing better. Right. So that, that's good. Because I think that's what that, when I think about like this major powerhouse, put like, you know, team up together, kind of kill all the competition and then it kind of no there's still there's still uh plenty of other competition but the thing about hiv that has been uh has been really important is that because treatment is not one drug it's always at least two drugs and in the early days no company had a whole bunch of drugs each company would have one and so the companies actually worked together to bring their drugs together to create regimens because you needed to have combinations. Now, nowadays, you know, all of the companies that are in work in HIV have multiple drugs within their within their particular portfolios and pipelines. But still, all the drugs get used together. And, and, and so, you know, it's not like, you know, one company is just going to have the whole, you know, going to have the whole field at this point. If anything, I think there's, you know, there's a lot of startups that are still trying to develop new drugs. Mm -hmm. And then we're always talking to people about, you know, uh, new 
new drugs that they're looking to develop and, and whether or not there's something that we can help them with, or can we bring it into Beeb and, and, and bring it into a bigger company? This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. So my my next question, like, you know, you're, you're spending a lot of your first part of your career being in hospital kind of clinic, kind of academia in a way, and moving to kind of a corporate world. What are the lessons that you learned from being in a clinic and a university academia that you think helped you uh, thrive and success, be successful in your current position? And what are the other parts that you have to learn that you did not know? Well, you know, certainly being in an academic environment, you, you know, you learn, um, you know, what does it take to, to design studies to get those, to get those studies funded? And how do you, you know, how do you, how do you design research questions? You know, you, you learn how to become a researcher and you get an opportunity uh, to be close to the patient, to be connected to the patient, to hear the patient and understand what their needs are. And for me, it was always that my, my research was focused on addressing, you know, really underrepresented populations, um, trying to you know, improve outcomes for populations that weren't doing as well on treatment, African-Americans, women in some cases. And, and so, you know, that, that energy, that passion that I had there really set me up to be able to come to industry and bring that same passion. I, you know, I, I kind of warned folks before they hired me that, that, that I was going to be a troublemaker and that I was always going to be you know, advocating for making sure that our clinical trials represented people of color adequately, that we had that we had appropriate enrollment of women, that we were answering the questions that patients were asking. That it wasn't just about, you know, can you make a drug that's gonna sell well, but is it a drug that is going to improve the life of the people who you make that drug for? And so, you know, what I that that time I spent in clinical care and the academic environment taught me how to be a researcher, but taught me also about delivering for patients and, and you know, that relationship with patients. I mean, I, I so many years I took care of, you know, I met individuals, they became my patient. They were my patient for the next decade. And so you had that relationship that, you know, there's nothing that is you know, I think nothing can replace that experience of being able to have a relationship with a patient where, you know, they're counting on you to, to guide them through this very difficult disease. And so I took that, that, those learnings and brought those to, uh, to, to the corporate environment. You know, what are the things that I, that I didn't learn about and I had to learn about in, 
corporate well i guess we move at a faster pace no question you know in academics you know you're not things as you know well tend to move kind of you know it takes a you're right you spend forever writing the grant and then you spend forever waiting on the grant to get reviewed <laughs> and they, do you get approved and 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 there's a there's a lot of um things just don't move as fast whereas in industry you're not you know when you make a decision to move forward on a project the resources are there and you're moving at pace the expectation is that you're moving at pace so everything is much faster um certainly you know the 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 reputation of pharma is quite negative it the, the assumption is that if you work for pharma that it's all about you know money and it's all about you know it's not it's not about the patients and so i had to get used to the fact that people might see me differently than they'd seen me before i was in um in 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 the corporate environment and i and i've had to demonstrate in the current setting that it's still me i'm still the same person who was advocating for um you know access to medicines regardless of your ability to pay appropriate representation in clinical trials all of that so i'm still the same person who was fighting for that before uh the corporate environment and now within the corporate environment and you know i'm fortunate that i've come I, i'll say it differently because to say i'm fortunate that i've come to a company that does that work and has those commitments it's not really fortunate i never would have joined pharma if that if it wasn't a company that i had thought had the right values and had the right mission and so you know our mission at beve is to leave no patient living with hiv behind uh and so that says we're developing drugs not just for you know the masses that potentially is going to be a big seller but also for children um you know most of whom are in resource limited settings where you know there there's not going to be profit made from those products but it's going to absolutely change and save lives mm-hmm. um we also you know develop drugs for people who have multi drug resistance that's a small population of people but it's a population of people that if they don't get you know new drugs they they're not going to survive so um you know we make sure that our drugs are tested for people who have uh not only hiv but also tuberculosis so that you can treat both their hiv and tuberculosis safely so you know this is this kind of company that i now get to help shape the future but that's that's the only place i could see myself being in a company that that lived my values and so you know i i feel very fortunate because you know it's a unique opportunity and and i can say it's certainly the best job i've ever had in my life because i get to impact so many people around the world and i think you also i sounded that you also have the opportunity to shape it mm-hmm. continue to shape it yes yes And a good example of that is you know when we um you know so we're we've been developing a a drug for HIV prevention and it's a, it's a long acting drug it's a you know a shot you take every two months to, and if you know so when we were designing the studies for that in a, you know last a uh, few years we made sure that those studies included 
the populations most impacted in the United States, and that is Black men who have sex with men. If you look at the statistics in the U.S., I mean, you know, that it's just disproportionately of the 36 to 38,000 cases that happen in the U.S. every year, a huge chunk of them are Black men who have sex with men. And so, but but the clinical trials of PrEP agents, prevention agents for HIV in the past did not do a good job of representing that population. And so when we designed the study that we did in, in collaboration with the National Institute of Health, the uh, HIV Pre- Prevention Trials Network, you know, we said, listen, and they were, we were all on the same page that this is going to, we're going to do this differently. We're not going to just have studies that will focus on, you know, the, the population of white men who have sex with men. They've been the population study before. Let's make sure that we, we study black men who have sex with men. And then let's make sure that we actually study women. So a lot of the PrEP studies didn't study women, or in some cases, the PrEP studies um, didn't demonstrate the benefit of the medicine for women. And we were, at the time that we designed these, these two major studies that delivered last year, um, at the time, there, there, there weren't a lot of studies that had shown really a lot of success for PrEP for women. And so we designed two big studies, one that was men who have sex with men and transgender women and transgender populations are always underrepresented. And But at very, very, um, you know, increased vulnerability to HIV, there are populations that have a disproportionate impact of HIV. And so we made sure that those studies had those populations in them. And so, you know, when we did, when the results came out and we ended up showing that this drug is really effective and, and more effective than daily oral medicine, it was, it was thrilling, not just because the drug worked great, but because it worked great in the populations who need it the most. And mm-hmm. so that was, you know, but that's an example of the ability to shape, you know, how you know, how you deliver, how you study drugs, how you deliver drugs. And then, and then, you know, next, once we launch this, hopefully next year, you know, how you make it available and and get it into the populations that need it the most. So do you think in the past, it was more like when they did a clinical study, they just put out like, hey, we're looking for, there's no specific ads for that particular certain population. It's more like general population intake. Yeah. yeah, most of the time it was the, you know, who's the most easy to enroll and readily available population? You know, let's go to, you know, where to the, to the, to, you know, the clinics we've been going to for a long time. Let's, you know, and, and, and whoever comes is who comes as opposed to saying, um, we want to make sure that, that the makeup that the study is includes a population that hasn't been represented. And so how are we going to do that? How are we going to go about finding that population and letting them know about this study? Because the thing is, is that, you know, some of the, I think, misperception is that communities of color are not interested in participating in clinical trials. When in reality, I think it's that people of color are often not asked to participate in clinical trials. And so you need to, you know, go to people where they are, make let them know what opportunities for clinical trials are there and uh, and make it make it make it easy for them to be able to participate if they want to. 
And that's what, you know, that's what this this trial, that's what this trial did in the U.S. And, and, and the women's trial was mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. And again, we, you know, take it to where people, people need it the most. So how, you know, I feel like now in the U.S., when you have HIV, you have options and in a different part of the world, it still can be really deadly. And how do we, how does this work in more like as a public health, but more like global public health? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, so, you know, we've made a commitment to make our medicines accessible to people no matter where they live in the world and even in the least developed uh, countries. And so, so um, basically we give our drugs, we give voluntary licenses to generic companies in, to make our drugs at the cheapest cost possible in order to make them available in you know, the least developed countries and, and so places like South Africa. So for example, Dolutegavir, which is you know, a, an extremely effective drug that is, you know, the it's on the you know the preferred recommended medicines on guidelines around the world, including the U.S. So it's it's you know it is the 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 best that's available out there for HIV treatment. Um, that's available to people in sub-Saharan Africa that are in everywhere in you know every every possible place we could launch it in the world. And so now there are 38 million people, roughly, living with HIV. About 18 million of those are on a Dolutegavir-based regimen. So, you know, our commitment to making our medicines available has, I think, had a tremendous impact um, because this is this is just they're just effective drugs that are well tolerated. And so, getting the best drugs to everybody was was really our our mission. And then we made a child-friendly uh, formulation of it so that again, the best drug could be available not only to adults. But also to children, because you know, for children living with HIV, they have they have way fewer options available to them than adults. And so, you know, that's that's the commitment that the company has made to make our medicines available. And so the same thing will be true for our long acting medicine. You know, we intend to make it particularly for PrEP, make it available in the environments where, you know, um, where really high rates of HIV infections are occurring. So you, you know, I remember. I moved to this country in the 90s and um, we started seeing some of the, I think I remember Magic Johnson when he admitted that he has the HIV, that was the biggest things. Um, but at the same time, now you don't hear it so much anymore. I mean, of course, COVID is taking over mm-hmm. all our news channel. Do you, I think I, do you see that as a day when maybe HIV will be, completely eradicated and how to get there. I hope so. Um, you know, I mean, our, I, I would tell you that our commitment as a company is not only to make medicines to treat HIV, but also to do the research on getting to a cure. So getting to something where you can actually not require people to continue to take medicines for the rest of their life. And so you know, we're we're contributing to it. Other uh, pharma companies are contributing to it. And there's lots of researchers around the world that are working towards an HIV cure. Um, it's tough, um, obviously, 40 years now into the epidemic. But uh, but, I, you know, I, I do believe there's some, there's good progress that's being made. And, you know, I hope in my lifetime, maybe even in the next 
decade uh, that, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have some, some really good progress towards a cure. So I, I, I don't think it's going to happen around the corner, but um, I, don't, I don't think it's impossible to get there. Uh, I know we are close to our time and I would not want to end our conversation without asking you the question of what is your three biggest lessons learned uh, that now looking back that you always remember the mistake that you make, but you always remember it because you overcome that and you, that you can share. Well, I, I just say don't give up. You, you're always going to run into uh, challenges. You're always going to run into things that, that will, you know, that really make you think you can't, you can't continue or that this isn't for you or, um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just, if you have passion and energy for something, you're going to find a way to get there. You just keep going and don't, don't give up. Think of it like a marathon or any other, mm-hmm. you know, just, just there, you dig deep and there's, there's something there to help you get, you know, help you make the next step. So, so, you know, being, and, and I mentioned, you know, when I just deciding to, to go to med school and become a physician, I mean, you know, no one in my, actually no one in my, you know, family had, was a physician. Actually, they were rare individuals in my family that even had gone to college. And so, you know, that it wasn't, it wasn't ordained, preordained that it was going to happen for me, but I was, I was committed and I had, you know, a supportive environment and I was determined. And so I've used that kind of determination to get me through my career. So it's, it's that, you know, you don't have to come from, you know, a, a family of doctors or from a particular environment to make your career happen in the way you want it to. You, you have to just see it and make it happen. So that's one point, don't give up. But the second point is relationships are important. Take, take them seriously. Um, you know, the, the, I, I talked about people who mentored me throughout my life um, in my career. You know, you develop those relationships with people and it might be, might be 10 years later, but that you'll come across them again. And if you develop a, a, a strong relationship, you never know how that can impact your career, your future. So, you know, I talked about the fact that I, part of me coming into this role was a relationship with my mentor. Um, and let's see, he was my mentor up till 1998. Then he went off in the industry, but we kept in touch. And, and 15 years later in 2013 is when, you know, we came together for me to come and join this company. So that relationship was critical to, you know, giving me the opportunity to be in the role that I'm in now. So relationships are important and, and so cultivate them. And, you know, I guess if, if, if I had to say what's the third thing, it is, um, you know, be yourself, be your genuine self uh, in, 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 and, and be humble. Um, you know, always think about, um, you know, all the opportunities that you've given, you've been given that helped you to get to where you are and appreciate them. Uh, but bring your genuine, authentic self. And then, you know, you don't have to compete with anybody else to be you. You're, you're the only you out there, right? So just be you. And, um, you know, that's, that's probably what I would uh, say are, are sort of off the cuff, three quick life lessons. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you. I know you mentioned that, when you know your experience with your patient 
that cannot um, kind of their, your North Star compass mm -hmm. as you do. Can you share, is there like one story that you can share that, you know, you it really touch you that when the going is hard that you look back to mm -hmm. that can help you move forward? Oh boy, there's so many stories um, of people that I've had the opportunity to care for and, ha and, and be a part of their journey. Um, and they've all taught me something. But I, I guess, you know, I just think about always feeling like you have to hear what, what people are saying to you. And so in some of the early days with treatment, I, you know, I would have a, one patient in particular, she just struggled, 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 struggled with taking her medicines consistently. And she would come to me and she would tell me that she had this challenge or that challenge. And, you know, it was sometimes like I kind of just, I, I would get a little frustrated. I want, I want her to just take your medicines, you know, <laughs> consistently. And then we, you know, we, we, we'd be good. You know, you do so much better. But, you know, ultimately, it took, it took a, a while for me to really understand that she was struggling with um, all of the burdens that came from taking a medicine, dealing with the side effects, trying to live your life, feeling the stigma, just the, the, the incredible weight of, of, of HIV. And, you know, what I learned from her and, and all of my patients is that, you know, if you're not walking in somebody else's shoes, you can't really, you know, you can't really appreciate what they're going through. And so I, I tried to learn to have that kind of that, that compassion and that empathy to really hear what she was saying to me about the medicines and what the challenges were. And I've taken that learning into this part of my career to say, you know, how do we make medicines that take away that burden, take as much of that burden as we can lift away? That daily reminder of uh, living with HIV every time you take your pill. Uh, the, the, for her, almost constant nausea that she experienced and just, you know, it, it, you know, I'm, I'm such a wimp. If I'm nauseated, I got to go lay down. I can't. It's not like I got, I'm going to be able to function. But just think about people sort of living with nausea almost all the time and having to learn to live with it in order to take the medicine that was allowing us to survive. So it's, it's hearing all of that and turning it, you know, turning it into an education that allows you to do something different for people. So that's so yeah, the patients are my north star. When I when I talk to my teams, I, that's exactly the phrase that I use is to say patients are our north star. They guide us towards what we want to deliver. And you know, when we if we if we stop following that north star, when we're, we're lost. Um, and so that's um, you know that's that's the learning from 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 really being in the trenches and and getting the opportunity to be a part of people's lives in their journey. That's great. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us in your story. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, 
and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.